Welcome, everyone, to the show. It is Sunday, April 24th, and we're coming back to you after missing a couple of weeks during the operational pause after the Russian post-defeat uh, withdrawal in the north. I'm Dimitri Alperovich, chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitical think tank in Washington, D.C. And I'm once again joined by Michael Kaufman, an expert on the Russian military and a research program director in the Russia Studies Program at the Center for Naval Analysis. We're actually coming to you tonight from the same undisclosed location, uh, so we'll just use my account for the broadcast. And by the way, before we start, I do want to say that it is not our intention to just have a bunch of guys on the show. We are working hard to bring more diverse perspectives, particularly from terrific female experts on Russia and Russian military. Uh, the schedule just has not worked out, unfortunately, but we hope to have some non-male guests on the future shows very soon. So, Mike, uh, first of all, welcome back. And uh, let's start with a sit wrap. A lot has happened in a couple of weeks that we've uh, not talked to you. Um, where do things stand now from your perspective? So thanks, Dmitry, uh, for having me back on the discussion. I think it's fair to say that the Russian military started to begin an offensive in the Donbass. They've redeployed their forces after retreating in the north. Uh, they are trying to hold a perimeter around Kherson City in the southwest. They have started to move units from Mariupol up north in Zaporizhia to prevent, prepare sort of a southern axis of advance, at least kind of a fixing action. So you're against, actually seeing units from Mariupol siege moving up. Yeah, it looks like they're starting to redeploy. And that's very likely why Putin said that they're not going to do a storming of the Azovstal uh, facility because they actually need those units and they can't afford the casualties. The Russian military as a whole has taken significant casualties, both in manpower and material. And the units they're currently redeploying, to be honest, many of them are fragments glued together. It's a pretty mauled force. They brought up reinforcements from the rest of what is available in the Russian military. That's maybe around 10 to 15 additional battalion tactical groups. That does not replace the losses they've had. And as you know, they have a big manpower shortage because they are trying to fight this war in peacetime strength, right? So they have no more really available units in the Russian military without Putin declaring a national mobilization and a general state of war. He's still trying to have this as a special operation. So there is nothing they can bring in from the Far East. There is nothing they can bring from Central Asia. This is it. No, this is it. And they are trying to raise manning levels piecemeal behind the scenes by offering people short-term contracts, even on the Moscow Metro, you can see ads for sign up for a couple months to be a contract serviceman and a lot of money in order to get more men. How much money are we talking about? Um, you know, I won't uh, disclose exact amount, but let's say around four times the average Russian salary or thereabouts. So, so it's very attractive. It's very attractive in the regions outside of Moscow and St. Petersburg. I think it's, it's, it's perhaps attractive, especially if you don't know how bad the war is going. Uh, if you're in an information environment where you don't necessarily know what's really going on on the front lines, it might seem lucrative. So with that in mind, that's still trying to raise kind of the other third of the force, and that'll take quite a while. They have to go into this offensive essentially what they have. And the correlation of force for Russia is not great because Ukrainians have mobilized a lot of reserves. They started to equip some of them. So they've regenerated force numbers. And now the West is sending substantial weapons, you know, that over time will allow Ukraine to generate more and more brigades. So the actual forces on the battlefield, the trajectory of the balance of power is steadily going into Ukraine's favor. There's just an honest assessment. Now, now, obviously, the Donbass area where this fight is going to be held is pretty far away from Kiev, very far away from Western Ukraine. How, do you think the Ukrainians have been able to move the forces that they've had? Uh, in those regions, um, uh, preparing, of course, for the, for the attack um, that the Russians have now uh, withdrawn from. Um, do you think the, the, the Ukrainians have been able to reinforce the forces in the Donbass that they've had? So it looks like they're redeploying just as Russian units redeployed all the way through Russia and Belarus. Uh, they're bringing up units towards the Kharkiv region and to the Donbass. They're in a position themselves to launch some counterattacks while the Russian offensive progresses. As the general picture looks right now, the Russian military is trying to push south from Azum towards Slavyansk and Kramatorsk. They're trying to press onto Severodonetsk, which is essentially a salient from different directions. And if they take that, then they've essentially gotten all of the Luhansk Oblast. And they're trying to push southwest of Azum to cut the ground lines of communications to Kramatorsk, essentially west of Kramatorsk, 
to get a partial envelopment, not a complete one. I think that's completely out of the cards, but they are definitely trying to sever some of the, the connections to Kramatorsk. And that's not clear what's going to happen in the South in terms of what the Southern Military District actually has available in manpower. It's been pretty badly attritioned as well as the force. And, and it's not clear if there's going to be a real major Southern line of advance here, but they're definitely pushing for a little bit from the Southern side as well. Um, I mean, I can speak a bit to kind of the air power mix, but that's very hard to tell from open sources. The attrition of Russian aviation has, has, has been far less critical than the attrition to just general manpower and to uh, armored fighting vehicles. What, what about the artillery? The artillery, I don't think, is a significant level of attrition for Russia. I think the big challenge for artillery from both sides uh, is, as always, ammunition. I actually think the more, bigger challenge is on the Ukrainian side, probably, for artillery and ammunition. That's why it was very smart for the West to start supplying them artillery, and in particular, the ammo for artillery systems, both Soviet, but also the new uh, Western ones of various makes that, that we're now giving them. So I know you hate, uh, you always say that uh, war is contingent and you hate making predictions about the battles, but um, I mean, what do, you, what do you think the odds are for the Ukrainians actually being able to thwart this offensive? I mean, the odds are good. The, the, honestly, the outcome can range anywhere from the Russian military making gains to suffering a significant defeat in this battle, right? Ground warfare by itself favors the defender. And the correlation of forces isn't necessarily that good for Russia, but it's hard to know the real state of Ukrainian forces in the Donbass and what the correlation is going to look like on that immediate battlefield. And Russian Empire probably can achieve local air superiority there. That's not the issue. Um, the issue is more that Russian, Russian airspace forces can't really do close air support. And that's a job that normally Russian helicopters do, and Russian helicopters can't do it in this particular war because of the proliferation of man pads and short-range air defense on the battlefield, right? Because it gets shot down. So the Russian military is a big problem in that, however it uses its air power, it can't really be that effective. So even if they're not losing that much in the way of aircraft, although they've lost something like 22 uh, fixed-wing aircraft from the tactical aviation component, it's, it's making them operate in a way that the Air Force cannot effectively provide any sort of close air support to the ground forces. That's more the issue. And I won't necessarily go down that rabbit hole because yeah. it gets technical. So, so the stingers that we provided and other man pads are actually having a big effect. Yeah, world. absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Ukraine's absolutely flooded with man pads and they still have quite a bit of short range air defense. Even though they've lost quite a few radar guided SAMs of various kinds, uh, you bet. And it, it has a real effect on the battlefield. Now, um, uh, some some observers have pointed out that the Russians have launched this offensive while they're still flowing forces in, that they have not massed all the forces that they can actually bring into this uh, uh, this battlefield, including from Mariupol, including from the forces they've withdrawn from the north. Um, why do you think they did this? Why, why not wait until you assemble the maximum amount of force that you can bring to the table here? Why are they doing that piecemeal? Um, so I've thought about how how they were likely to do it. And my sense of it is they're not doing it because they're in any way pressed by some artificial deadline, something like May 9th. I've never really bought that story. I don't think it's deterministic. I think the reason they are trying to do it now as fast as they can is because they know that in the near term, time is very much against them. Because if they wait, Ukrainian forces will also redeploy and reorganize. And they're in a better position overall, right? Plus, they're in the defender's position. And so I think they probably are, are running a gamble as to whether or not they wait longer and put together a more cohesive force while also giving Ukraine the opportunity to set up much better defense versus going now and, 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 then, and then trying to reinforce as they, as they make advances. And obviously also uh, Ukrainians have the opportunity to get more weaponry from, from Western countries as well. Now, have you seen, I mean, since day one, this war has been characterized by just awful tactics and strategy on the part of Russian military. Have you seen any improvement in that, in this fight for the Donbass? And I was particularly struck by our friend Dara Masakut's tweet um, a couple of days ago, and we hope to have Dara on uh, in the future podcast. But uh, she talks about how, from an uh, air perspective, uh, the Russians have absolutely failed at close air support, as you've said, suppression of air, enemy air defenses and, and a variety of different tactics. But they're doing a hell of a job of practicing for the May 9th parade by doing a Z in the sky 
uh, formation uh, with their uh, planes. Uh, is, is it all for show? Are you actually seeing any real improvements on the battlefield? All right. Well, it's a pretty broad question, Dmitry. Um, I'll, I'll put it this way. So the initial operations, we know, was a quick attempt at regime change, where little was organized for a war, little planned, and the troops are neither psychologically nor materially prepared to, to fight a real war. Then they adjusted towards still trying to pursue those objectives, but completely unworkable military strategy, right? Three different fronts, five, six different axes of advance, lots of forces dispersing, essentially competing with themselves. And that wasn't going to work either. And they took significant casualties. They took massive casualties in the first three weeks. I actually think the bulk of their casualties are probably around in the, in the first three weeks. The attrition was significant. Okay. So since then, yes, definitely have seen adjustments in terms of the structure of the operation, unifying it more into one front, probably reorganizing command and control logistics for this and air support. To be honest, I actually think that they had several air forces in this because each military district deployed with their own support logistics and with their own air support. And I think you basically saw more like four campaigns and probably more like three to four Air Force components providing uh, air support to the troops that they were supporting a line of attack. And that's one of the many reasons why you didn't see both either a cohesive campaign or even necessarily a cohesive air campaign. I can get into the air conversation at some point if you like. But uh, the adjustments in the Russian military are going to be more on the strategy and operational level. Tactically, the Russian military is very rigid, and many of the problems they have are structural. They cannot fix them in this war right now. Uh, for example, the Russian military has a dearth of infantry. Okay? It's taken me a while to figure out what's going on. Uh, what I can tell you is that, yes, they are struggling to engage in the fact of combined arms. That is true. But one of the problems they have is that they actually have fairly little infantry. They, that's by design. That is the way this military was built out and do lower readiness levels because they are fighting at peacetime strength. So they have a substantial decrement to the amount of manpower they have. They brought a lot of vehicles. They brought a lot of tanks. They brought a lot of artillery. They didn't bring a lot of infantry. Guess what? If that's guess what? Is that going to be a problem if you have largely urban environment fights and you have a lot of armor moving around that you need to support with infantry, but you don't much infantry? So you look, you look around and you see actually they're this is one vignette, but there are is major it, issues. Is this an organizational problem or is this uh, a doctrine problem? Because, I mean, you always, do, uh, you know, support tanks with infantry, right? Why don't they have that? Okay, so it, one, it is a conscious choice in how they structure the military and the sort of fight the structure for. Two, the initial problem was definitely forced employment as well and how they got into this war. Three, they have major issues at the tactical level as well some problems with the basics and the fundamentals, right? So it's a combination of all three of those. Um, I will definitely weigh in particular certain structural force problems because if you build an army for a very different kind of war and then you try to employ it in this kind of war, at peacetime strength, pretending you're not actually fighting a war with the second largest country in Europe outside of Russia with very large military, uh, it's, it's going to be a disaster either way. But just adding on top of the fact of... of how bad they have been in a number of things. Got it. So we'd be remiss not to talk about the Moskva cruiser, um, a major development that happened while we were off, um, the flagship of the Black Sea. But it was also a pretty old ship, right? Uh, built, uh, I think, in the late 70s. Uh, has not undergone major uh, refurbishments since then. Um, how important it is that the Ukrainians were able to target it and destroy it? Uh, what are the implications of that action? So... There's a lot we don't know about what actually happened with the Moskva, right? And I, I will say this, that I only have my own conjecture as to how this episode unfolded, right? That the Moskva was part of a uh, general blockade with Black Sea forces deployed, um, that the Ukrainians did hit it with two Neptune missiles. I think that's true. I suspect that those missiles caused a series of secondary fires aboard the ship. And I suspect that the Russian uh, sailors were not able to put them out and that they did eventually reach one of the magazines and went critical and probably the whoever could abandon the ship at that point. That's basically my theory of events. And you take that for what it's worth because obviously I wasn't there and I don't know. Now, now one thing that the Ukrainians have said is that they had this TB2 drone flying in that distracted the ship somehow 
you know, 500 soldiers, uh, sailors on the ship got distracted by a drone. Do you buy that? Um, I would say that it's true that that's a story, but I'm not sure that that's a true story. <laughs> so that's, that's my view on that subject. Got it. Okay. Um, but what are the implications of the sinking of the Moskva? Well, politically, the implications are significant. It's a huge embarrassment for Russia, uh, flagship of the Black Sea Fleet, and it's a big public victory for Ukraine. Operationally, they're not especially significant, to be very honest. The blockade continues. Um, you know, the Russian Navy will likely now begin to assume that Ukrainians do have initial operating capability for these Neptune missiles, and they have some that in, the, in their stock, or at least some they can make. So they're likely going to change up how they operate in the Black Sea. But big picture in terms of blockading Odessa and keeping uh, commercial traffic out of the area, that's not going to change. I mean, you're not going to get anybody to insure a commercial ship to and, go up there. And there was a lot of misunderstandings about this, but Moskva is not involved in the caliber missile strikes on Ukraine. It doesn't have the caliber missiles, right? So uh, it won't have much of an impact on the uh, missile war that, that the Russia is waging against Ukraine's cities. No, I was gone for a week traveling. And in that time, I read a lot of things about the Moskva that weren't exactly true. Um, the Moskva does not have land attack cruise missiles. It was not involved in land attack cruise missile strikes against Ukraine. Um, to be perfectly honest, as a ship, is quite old. There was a robust debate in the Russian military about whether or not she was she should have been mothballed instead of going through a life extension program. But it's not a very modernized ship, which isn't to say that the Moskva shouldn't have been able to engage anti-ship missiles like Neptune, right? That's not what I'm trying to say here. But we don't know very much about the actual vignette and what happened in, the, in that engagement. So I'm not going to speculate. It's just it. to say that this is this is pretty far from it, it, as big of a ship as this is pretty far from the latest and greatest in the uh, in the Russian Navy. Um, so a couple of other questions about this Donbass fight. If you look at the map of where the Russian forces are, they're actually quite remarkably close to Dnipro, to Zaporozhye, huge cities, of course, in central Ukraine. Um, and, and they're next to Kharkiv, as they have been since almost day one of the war. Um, any danger that those cities will actually get um, besieged by the Russians? I don't think so. Um, I think the, the main thrust of the Russian advance is going to be the Donbass and uh, the main cities they're aiming for. You know, Donbass is a relatively urban area, nonetheless. It actually has a lot of towns and smaller cities. So the main ones that I think the Russian military is trying to capture are Severodonetsk, Slavyansk, and Kramatorsk. Okay. And those are still significant fights for them. Because if you recall, kind of as I went down this rabbit hole of infantry, you need infantry to fight for cities. Right? If you don't have a lot of infantry, you have major issues in urban environments. Yeah. Right? Tanks by themselves aren't, aren't going to cut it. So, and you, uh, you saw this in Mariupol, right? They've been trying to take that city since March 2nd, almost coming up on two months, and they still have not taken the whole city. Well, it was mostly Russian-led forces from the two separatist army corps and the, and the whole bunch of Chechens from the so-called Chechen Rosguardia, backed by uh, Eighth Combined Arms Army. I mean, the two army corps that are fighting from the separatist side, DNR, LNR, are effectively extensions of the Eighth Combined Arms Army. That's why, for a long time, the defense community calls them RLF, Russian-led forces. And they probably took significant casualties as well fighting for those towns. Um, it's from what I can tell, they're going to be, or at least they appear to be shifting units from Mariupol at this stage, right? Got it. Um, you, you mentioned this on Twitter, so I, I want to ask you directly here. Um, you do think that regardless of what happens in the Donbass fight, that this is the last offensive, major offensive that the Russian forces can uh, undertake without a major mobilization. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, this offensive by themselves, by itself, is going to be an incredibly challenging fight for Russia. I think after this, the no matter how it goes, win, lose, make some gains, it becomes a draw in some ways. However you cut it, I think the Russian military is going to be a spent force in terms of offensive potential after this, which isn't to say that then it can be easily defeated. But Ukraine has strong counteroffensive options, just to be frank. Yeah. And what happens after that, to me, is, is unclear. Like, Ukraine does not need to accept a stalemate. People have asked, well, does that mean it's a stalemate? And the honest answer is no. 
it, it doesn't necessarily become a stalemate at all. So, uh, but the reason I ask is that um, uh, a lot of people got very excited about this briefing from a Russian uh, general um, that, that's um, the acting uh, commander of the um, Russian Central Military District uh, that talked about, um, essentially described the current situation, that this is a fight for the Donbass, that they now have this uh, corridor to Crimea. Uh, but then he also said um, that uh, the, the, the um, control of, of the south of Ukraine gives them a way out to Transnistria. Now, I had a Twitter thread on this um, saying that this did not imply that they were about to take Transnistria, which means taking Mykolaiv, taking Odessa and going all the way up to the coast um, um, uh, to Moldova, um, that this was simply uh, an optionality situation where he was saying that in the future, maybe we can do another offensive if we can control the South. Is, is that your understanding as well? Yeah, I think folks jumped on that statement to assume that suddenly they were adding a new campaign objective. But to be clear, the Russian military attempted to get to Odessa in the first phase of the war and failed and were defeated outside of Lenishansk. That's it. They don't have the capacity to do that to begin with. And they're not going to after the Donbass offensive. And I don't think he really meant that either. Um, the thing I got from his statement was that they intend to hold on to the south, which is important because it gives us a sense of what they're actually going to do with Kyrgyzstan and with the part of Zaporizhia they control. It means they're not letting go. And he implied what I think a lot of folks had already assumed, that the next way forward for them was going to be to apply economic pressure onto Ukraine via blockade. And the fact that they control substantial resources. And remember, they kind of have a double blockade because they're blockading a dust of the main port. They're also blockading the Dnieper through control of Kyrgyzstan. Um, beyond that, I didn't get much out of it. And I don't like folks sort of jump on it. He's the deputy commander of the Central Military District. I think why is he acting right now? Yeah, why is he suddenly the authority on the Russian plan for the campaign? Just because yeah. the Russian general said something to a paper? Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, well, let's talk about Kherson because they do control it now. There's a bunch of Ukrainian statements that have been made in the last few weeks that they're preparing to declare uh, or have a referendum of, of another people's republic like they have in Donetsk and Lavansk, the Kherson People's Republic. Um, and um, there's actually uh, a bunch of statements on social media from Ukrainians saying don't uh, fall for Russian offers of, of uh, food aid because when you go to the Russian military checkpoints to get the aid, they're asking you for a copy of your passport. And then they get, get your IDs and, and they can use that to fake uh, voter rolls uh, for the referendum. Um, do you think that, um, but you, you've also seen, particularly in the last few weeks, uh, significant counterattacks from the Ukrainians against their positions in the Kherson. Chernobyl has taken a lot of artillery hits where they've lost helicopters. They've lost uh, a number of key officers. And, and Ukraine claimed um, earlier this week that um, they killed another 50 officers in another strike. Uh, near Kherson. Um, do you think that this is the one area where the Ukrainians can launch a major counteroffensive and actually kick Russians out of Kherson? Yeah, I think that Kherson city is a real vulnerability for the current Russian position. The units they have deployed around it on the western side of the river, they're pretty light. And they're going to struggle to maintain a defensive perimeter outside of Kyrgyzstan city. So I think there is a real possibility that they will get pressed by a Ukrainian offensive and have to retreat across the river and essentially uh, blow the bridges, which is a much more defensible position for them. They'll still control much of Kyrgyzstan, but not the city itself. And if they blow the bridge, that will make it very difficult for the Ukrainian counterattack to take the rest of the Kherson Oblast, uh, because there you have much better reinforcements from, from Crimea, right? Yeah, the river is a natural obstacle, and down there, there's only two bridges really across it. Yeah. Now, let me ask you, and I know you hate this term, but the land bridge to Crimea that everyone's been obsessed with for, I feel like, years now, um, they do have it now, uh, this land corridor. Um, how important do you think it is strategically uh, for the Russians? So, you know, I'm not one of those people that's going to be nitnoid about terms, and the people want to call it the land bridge to Crimea, fine, have at it. Um, it, sounds, it sounds catchy. But regarding the actual objectives of the Russian campaign, you know, it's obviously much more than a bridge or a corridor. It's a lot of Kyrgyzstan. It's a lot of Zaporizhia. And they're going to try to capture more of the latter. And they're going to try to capture Donbass. How significant is it? Well, they do, they do end up potentially holding on to 
a sizable chunk of Ukrainian territory in the south and the east. But that also depends what happens with Ukraine offenses, right? This doesn't end necessarily end where the Russian leadership decides it ends after the Donbass. Ukraine will have a much stronger position to conduct its own offensives later on. Although I suspect the two main areas they're going to focus on first are not going to be a Donbass. I suspect it's going to be Kharkiv and Kyrgyzstan City. And why do you say that? Uh, because if they can press the Russian military out of Kharkiv, they can substantially constrain their ground lines of communication to the Donbass from the north. Wait, wait, I mean, they're not in Kharkiv, but they are around Kharkiv Oblast. Yeah, yeah. Kharkiv. The Kharkiv Oblast is quite sizable. Yeah. And um, north of Azum, actually, Ukrainians have deployed a number of units to threaten ground lines of communication there in their own counterattack. And Kherson City itself is kind of a natural target for an offensive. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, um, we, we had some p- uh, people submit some questions on Twitter. Um, again, sent at, uh, questions at me uh, if, if you want me to ask Mike something. But um, one question that's interesting is, why haven't we seen the Russians targeting bridges over the Dnieper to prevent supplies from reaching the Donbass? That is a brilliant question, and I wish I knew particularly the rail bridges, of which there are very few. Why Russia had not tried to sever the ground lines of communication to the Donbass is a mystery. It's one of the many mysteries of this war. Thank you for asking it. The moment I find out the answer to this question for myself, I will be happy to report it. Okay. And and, and sim- in similar vein, uh, one of the questions that I've had is, why haven't they try- tried to target the rail links uh, from Poland into uh, into Western Ukraine, that is what is responsible for much of the um, uh, weaponry that's coming in from the West. Um, and, and yet you haven't seen any strikes against the signaling stations or any of the infrastructure that you would need to um, to operate the r- railing. Nope. I haven't. And haven't seen that many strikes actually against Ukrainian command and control either beyond the first couple of days. Got it. And I don't have good answers for you there. <clears throat> so let's talk a little bit about the end game because... Um, you know, one of the things I said on Twitter uh, this week is that the, the outcome of the Donbass fight, in my opinion, doesn't actually strategically matter that much to how the, this war is going to end at this point. Whether Russia takes or doesn't take some village in the uh, Donbass region obviously matters a lot to the people there and to the Ukrainians. But I don't think it matters a, a, a great deal to Russia itself. Most Russians can identify most of these villages on the map. Um, and, uh, my, my supposition here is that, you know, if you're right, and I agree with you that this offensive is going to end here in, in the next month or so, um, regardless of how it ends, that Putin has enough right now to declare sort of a moral victory of, I have demilitarized Ukraine by destroying many of the weaponry systems that the Ukrainians are using. Never mind, of course, the supplies from the West, but I've destroyed its uh, industrial capacity to produce more weapons, which he has done um, to a large extent. He can claim that he's demilitarized, I mean, denazified, quote unquote, Ukraine by destroying the Azov battalion um, that, is, uh, that was defending Mariupol. Um, and then he can claim that uh, he's protected the, our people in the Donbass by expanding that territory and clearly has with Mariupol and uh, Zaporozhye region and having the land bridge and, you know, my, my, my theory is that that is enough for him to domestically say, I have won. And if he can keep that uh, land that he has acquired, regardless of what happens to the Donbass, he's achieved uh, some operational objectives, even though obviously he hasn't taken Kiev and hasn't changed the government. Do you, do you buy that? I mean, it's an interesting supposition. So I personally don't know what Putin's requirements are. Um, I don't really understand necessarily how this ends because Russia gave up most of its leverage over Ukraine when it withdrew from Kiev, to be honest. That was really the end of the negotiations because they lost most of their coercive leverage. The balance for the Donbass is important, but it's actually not that decisive. The decisive phase of the war was the first three weeks, or honestly, it was the first four days. Um, That is when much of this conflict was decided. At this stage, this battle is not, it's important, but it's not as deterministic. The big challenge for Russia is there's no guarantee they'll be able to hold on to any gains down the line. Even Mariupol, you think the Ukrainians could take it back? Uh, well, it all depends. Mariupol's pretty far from the battle line now, but it's it's just a matter of 
how is Russia going to continue fighting this war if Ukrainians don't want to don't want it to end and they want to actually keep going and take back occupied territory? Because the correlational force is going to steadily shift to Ukraine's favor because they just have more people. They have more people and they're getting kit arms and the ability to equip additional brigades from the West. Right. So they have a mobilized manpower base and they are getting the equipment for it. And particularly the artillery, the heavy armor yeah. that they're now getting is really important for them, right? Yeah, and increasingly they're going to be getting more types of systems that will make a difference. Various types of drones, loitering munitions. The Russian military has to still fight this large conventional war that they've not done well and they've been losing at, at essentially peacetime strength. And they're going to be tapped out after this offensive in the Donbass. Um, it's not clear to me actually necessarily what Putin's really thinking if he understands the gravity of the situation. And if they are really losing, then he may have to declare a real state of war and enact national mobilization. But do you think that the Ukrainians can actually go all the way and take Donetsk and Luhansk back uh, or even Crimea? That, uh, that seems like a, it's a stretch, right? Yeah, look, I don't want to speculate. Yeah. So it's just where I'm going to fall back on my uh, war is highly contingent, outcomes in are indeterminate, and... You know, we should probably focus on what's going to happen in this upcoming offensive for the Donbass first and then try to avoid speculating too far out from that and just judge the situation based on those initial outcomes. But, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of lessons to be learned just in assessing uh, force employment and operations and strategy from what happened in the early parts of this war. And people like me thought the Russian military was going to put together a proper combined arms campaign was going to be phased, that they were going to focus on the Donbass first, where they had huge advantages in correlation of forces, and go for Kiev, and that this wasn't going to be like a strange regime change operation where Russian forces just drive in expecting Ukrainians to lay their arms down, having prepared nothing for the war. So it just shows you how much is contingent in predictions and how much care we should take in sort of assuming how either side is going to perform. Although, although and, I, and I, I made the same mistake, I have to admit, but uh, uh, you and I perhaps should have remembered uh, Victor Chernomerdin, uh, the famous prime minister for Yeltsin in the 90s, who, who had lots of uh, 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 expressions uh, uh, that yeah. uh, ended up uh, being uh, very popular in Russia, but uh, one of his most well-known one was, we wanted the best, but it turned out like yeah. always. And it yeah. seems like a perfect uh, description of this war. Um, one, one question, you, you brought this up, the blockade. I've been focused a lot on this right now, because even if the Ukrainians are able to win the battle for the Donbass, even if they're able to take uh, some counteroffensive and get some land back, this blockade is a huge problem for, for them, right? Odessa is fully blockaded. Mariupol, of course, is, is uh, uh, taking the, the port of Mariupol and controlled by the Russians, Kherson. Um, right now in, in Russian hands. And that is the major export lifeline for Ukraine. Um, a lot of their grain, a lot of their um, critical industrial products leave typically um, by ship. Um, maritime shipping is much less expensive than, than overland shipping. And by the way, remember the rail links um, in Ukraine uh, have different um, um, gauge, gauge um, than the ones in Europe. So mm -hmm. when you're transporting into um, into Europe, you, you may have to do um, change um, uh, to change um, uh, from from one um, uh, train to another. Um, all that adds up costs. So you may have Ukraine, whose economy is severely diminished, not just by the war itself, but by this blockade. Is there any prospect for Ukraine to uh, break this blockade? Do they have um, anything in their arsenal, obviously they have the Neptune missiles, but they need to be used pretty close to shore. Um, does the Russia just control the Black Sea and, and there's no prospect of, of them um, uh, pushing back? You know, I think the problem is that even if they don't control the Black Sea, they can contest it enough to deny maritime shipping such that no insurer will insure a commercial vessel to traverse it. There are many ways to enact a blockade from Russia's position. It does not require surface combatants. They have submarines, sea mines, land-based aviation. They could enact the blockade in some ways literally from Crimea. All they have to do is target merchant shipping with from missiles. Crimea. Yeah, with coastal defense uh, cruise missile batteries that they have plenty of. And that's it. I mean, they only have to destroy a number of merchant ships. And you've seen in the opening of the war, merchant ships getting hit by anti-ship missiles. 
and uh, and mines as well spreading anchored mines that got torn off in the storm. So uh, when it comes to you know, enacting a blockade against a substantial military force is one thing, but against commercial shipping, it's a different story, right? Yeah. In some ways, commercial shipping can blockade itself because once you get into a place where nobody's going to just ensure a commercial vessel to traverse a body of water to go into a port, you can be very hard to find anybody to actually, you know, uh, ship these goods. I agree. I mean, to me, this is the biggest untold story of, of this war and particularly this phase of the war is that even if Ukraine wins, um, however you define victory, um, if the Russia is able to um, strangle the Ukrainian economy, that is going to be a huge problem uh, for, for President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people. Um, and it's not just the, the economic exports, it's also the brain drain that they've experienced, right? Over 6 million refugees have now left the country. Now, most of these are women and children because the men have not been allowed to leave. But at some point, conscription is going to end and you're going to have men that will be faced with a choice of, do we call the families back to go back into the war zone where you may not even have jobs available because the economy is decimated? Or do I join them in the West and Poland and elsewhere and start a new life? And, you know, you could have a Ukrainian population um, that may lose, you know, 8, 10 million people. Um, in the course of a year uh, for, for a country that started with about 40 million, right? Yeah, I mean, look, here's my view. The, politically, Ukraine has won this war. I think this war strategically is a defeat for Russia. But it's, an, it's incredibly costly, both for Ukraine and also for Russia, to be clear. Much less so for Russia, but many of the costs are yet to come for Russia. It's, it's, a, it's an economic and social catastrophe for Russia, too. It's much worse for Ukraine, obviously, given the loss of life and destruction. And, and to me, obviously, it's a great tragedy because uh, I'm from the region. But I, I'll, I'll put it this way. I don't know at this point what victory looks like for Russia, just to be honest. I, 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 don't, I don't see it happening. Um, for Ukraine, I'm not sure what the end state is going to be right now. It's just too early, to be frank. It's too early to tell. Uh, this could go on after the Donbass as a sustained conflict where Ukraine still has very good military options, but Russia maintains economic pressure. I don't know what the level of appetite in the West will be, how much support they're going to offer Ukraine. Heard Ukrainians have asked for something like $5 billion per month that they need. Yep. Uh, $60 billion a year um, if this continues for years. And, um, you know, that's real money. Um, there's questions of can you use the Russian foreign reserves that have been um, uh, frozen in the West, um, but um, that creates other problems because, uh, you know, we have uh, a lot of countries like China and uh, India and others that store a lot of their foreign reserves in the West. And um, this sets a really bad precedent where you, you didn't just seize it, but uh, you're actually giving it away um, to, to another country um, that can cause uh, a, a flight of capital uh, from, uh, from Western, um, uh, uh, Western central banks. Uh, that could be really problematic. Um, let me ask you this. I mean, you mentioned uh, general mobilization, that this is one of the things that Putin absolutely would have to do if he uh, were to achieve any, any significant uh, battle, uh, battlefield victories here uh, beyond the Donbass. Um, what do you think the prospects of that are? Um, Julie Yaffe wrote a great uh, piece for Puck um, this weekend, a great newsletter, talking about how all these predictions of Russian mothers that would start to see their sons um, getting killed in Ukraine and would start protesting have not panned out. In fact, many of them uh, believe that their sons died for righteous cause and, and are supportive of the war as, as ever. Um, do you think that Putin can politically get away with a general mobilization, potentially hundreds of thousands, maybe even a million uh, people that he can um, bring in? And how long would it take? Because obviously those people would be untrained and, uh, you need to um, uh, spend quite a bit of time to train them before you throw them into this, uh, uh, into this fight. Um, so I guess my first comment would be that it is, it is a bit surprising, but worth investigating that the domestic political support for this war is probably higher in Russia than we expected it to be. It's hard to measure. It's hard to say what the real support or let's say the depth of it is. Putin's been able to generate a substantial amount of domestic political support for a war that Russia is essentially losing, which is just worth merit saying. 
Um, the second point I'd make is that, of course, the Russian people don't know that they're losing it because the TV is talking about their 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 wins and uh, not their defeats. Well, they don't, but there's a lot of information that spreads and trickles through, and eventually they will. I mean, like Russia, I'm sorry, is not that anti-deluminant backwards as a country, right? It's, 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 it's hard to keep a catastrophe of this level that secret and a country as developed as Russia. So certainly a whole lot of people do know, or if they don't know, they very much suspect about what's really happening on the battlefield. Okay, and they can see all the funerals, Dmitry. There's a lot of funerals taking place for soldiers. Yes, with high honors, but a lot of funerals. Okay, and they can probably suspect how many soldiers have been left on the battlefield that aren't getting these burials. Yep. So it's actually interesting because in the first couple of weeks of the war, you you did see a lot of publicity on local TV stations in Russia about the dead soldiers, about the funerals, and then it kind of went away. Yeah. I, I definitely think that, that there must be folks in the public that, that suspect the, the extent of the losses. Um, the interesting part is that within the Russian public, the part of the public that is the least supportive of the war are actually the people you need for manpower, the young people, right? The people you want to mobilize and to sign contracts are those folks. And they're the ones least supportive of the war. Now, of course, there's a national mobilization. It doesn't matter if they're supportive or not, right? You're volunteered by the state, okay? You don't get a choice. You're mobilized. You have to go. And, and Russian interior forces are going to come and find you and make sure that you, you show up. Yeah. Yeah. You, you basically, you have to show. Um, here's the thing. If it was that easy, why has Putin not done it? He's doing everything to avoid doing it. In fact, the way they're going about trying to raise manning levels and the way they revise down the war aims tells me an awful lot. It suggests to me that he really doesn't want to do it. He's trying to do everything other than declare and, and a state by the way, the other, the other signal here is how allergic he has been to any suggestions that conscripts are fighting this war. Initially, he said that no conscripts would be sent. Then he said, uh, when uh, confronted with irrefutable evidence that conscripts are indeed in this war and fighting this war, he said, well, we're going to find them. We're going to find who's responsible and make sure they're punished. You know, that tells me that he appreciates that this could be really, really unpopular, particularly if done at scale. Yeah, there are conscripts in the fight, but not that many. I mean, one of the biggest problems, of course, manning levels. They are trying to fight it with a largely contract force based on those peacetime manning levels. And that gives them actually a very small percentage relative to the overall size of what the force is expected to be in a large war. And we should, we should say, uh, say that uh, contract uh, in the Russian military is not exactly the same as it is in Western militaries, that not all of them are necessarily true volunteers. Some of them are pressured to sign contracts, right, once they leave their deployments uh, as a conscript. So it's, it's, it's kind of a mix of uh, being blackmailed or forced into, into uh, the, conscri- uh, the, the professional uh, military cadre, right? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a percentage of that. But their biggest problem is actually the distribution of contract servicemen along specialties. Because when you get down to the nitty-gritty, you find out that amongst the contract servicemen, you don't have that much infantry. You don't have any some of the some of the basic specialties that you need for this type of war, and you basically have a military that expected a state of war to be declared, so that it could go from seventy percent to hundred percent or something like that readiness, and it's missing just a tremendous amount of manpower, right? And now they've after taking substantial losses, they don't have that much to fight with. Yeah, um, and they're trying to you know they're basically. Uh, throwing what they have available at this offensive. But in reality, on the ground, the Russian military effort now amounts to much, much less than what they actually started this campaign with. Yeah. Let's talk about another uh, uh, fascinating development this week um, that uh, is very puzzling. I got a lot of questions from reporters about it this week. But um, you had some really interesting fires uh, developing in Russia this week uh, at Defense Institute, uh, uh, catching fires. Um, um, uh, we, uh, the, you had a major chemical uh, facility that caught fire as well. Um, as we're speaking, an oil, oil storage facility in Bryansk is on fire, uh, as being reported by a Norwegian newspaper. Uh, what do you make of that? Is that uh, you know, Ukrainian special forces that are able to go that deep into Russia? 
Is that local sabotage? Is this uh, just accident-prone Russia? Uh, any 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 hypotheses? Nietzsche's, I, I don't know. Okay, <laughs> I don't know. It could be somebody's special forces. It could be sabotage. You know, it could be any number of things. I mean, it the, could be it could be a more classic. Um, in some cases, maybe not all. It could be also a more classic story where uh, people people start looking for what's available and they start looking for what's there and they find out there's things missing and suddenly there's a fire right. that makes, that makes the problem, <laughs> makes the problem disappear for whoever was administrating the facility. It could be any range of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it is interesting that it's all happening, you know, within one week. Um, and we do know that the Ukrainian intelligence services are quite competent and um, they've been able to, of course, um, uh, do some recruiting of Russian assets in the past, and uh, uh, perhaps they're able to orchestrate some of these attacks. You, you've seen the Ukrainians go on the offensive in the last couple of weeks. You've seen them hit the oil facility in Belgorod with those um, two uh, helicopters. We've talked about that in the past. Uh, there's been some shelling of some border villages that the Russians are claiming the Ukrainians have done as well. Um, so it seems like they're not just thinking about, you know, how do we fight in Ukraine itself, but how do we bring the fight to Russia to some extent, right? Uh, sure, that could be an interpretation of what's happening. <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. Uh, we're speculating here, but um, uh, it is uh, it, it is fascinating to watch. Uh, some of these are really impactful, particularly the chemical uh, facility uh, produces some of the most critical chemicals that the Russians uh, uh, that the Russians are um, uh, that the Russians need. Um, uh, one last uh, question, Mike. Here, um, peace negotiations. Uh, there's a story today in the FT that Putin has given up uh, on achieving peace with Zelensky. Zelensky apparently has made some concessions on neutrality if he's able to get uh, some guarantees from the West. Um, and Turkey came forward um, recently with Erdogan saying that he's going he's gonna to be willing to provide those guarantees. And clear to me, by the way, what those guarantees truly mean. I mean, are any of these countries really going to be willing to go fight Russia for, uh, for Ukraine? Um, uh, seems uh, seems like we've, we've, we've seen that movie before in 94 when Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons they didn't have full control over uh, for um, not guarantees, but um, uh, uh, security assurances that uh, ended up being uh, not uh, worth a whole lot. Um, but Putin is basically indicating here that's not enough, uh, right? Uh, that uh, beyond neutrality on NATO, that he uh, is interested probably in uh, a bunch of other things like, for example, um, recognition of Crimea and potentially all these other areas that he's taken and potentially also um, uh, uh, giving him and, and his troops immunity from war crime prosecutions that the Ukrainians, of course, are unlikely to give him. Uh, do you think that there's any prospect once the Donbass fight ends uh, for an actual peace agreement here? Mm, you know, I'm... I'm a bit skeptical. I got to be honest with you. Uh, I won't comment on the FT story because I don't know what insides and what rumor mill they, they, they used in part to, to put that story together. But um, here's what I think. The likelihood that after Donbass is going to be a peace settlement isn't very high. First of all, there's no reason for Ukrainians to accept a peace settlement or make concessions. Why? Well, if their economy is getting strangled, right, that's that's a major um, uh, thing that they're absolutely going to have a problem with. And, and there's a question of how long is the West going to be able to pay $5 billion a year, uh, not small amounts of money, to keep Ukraine government basically on life support. And of course, they need much more than that to actually re rebuild the country and uh, recreate a vibrant economy. I mean, those are valid points, but in wartime, I'm not sure that's going to be a decisive factor, just to be frank. Uh, and there's a big political challenge, which is that Let's imagine hypothetically you're still in Zidansky shoes for a second. You have the military power potentially to retake parts of the Donbass and Kherson, and you basically don't do it. You stop, right? And you leave all these Ukrainians occupied under Russian rule, especially after what you've seen happen in Bucha, right? How do you think you're really going to get away doing that in domestic politics? I don't see that. So I just don't see that very viable. Um, I also don't see Russia having substantial the leverage they wanted to have over Ukraine since they've withdrawn from Kiev. And so this war is probably going to go on and may not go on in the way it went in the first or second phase, right? It's important not to get sucked into this sort of straight line analysis. 
right? Phase two is not like phase one, and the conflict after that uh, is, is not necessarily going to be like these first two phases either. I don't, I don't like to get into that sort of bias, assuming that the war is going to go on this manner. I don't think it can. I don't think certainly Russia can't sustain it at this point. Uh, but I don't necessarily see a peace agreement or a settlement in the offing, certainly not in the near future. Sorry to sound kind of a disappointing note, but, but I've been a pessimist on the likelihood that the talks would lead to any kind of peace agreement very early on, if you remember these conversations we were having when the war started. So, yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, particularly with the, the land grabs that Putin has achieved, I just don't see him giving up an inch voluntarily of any of the um, uh, cities that he's taken. Um, and certainly Mariupol is going to be a key moment of pride for him. He's just announced a major victory there. And, uh, you know, to give that up uh, would be uh, a huge stain on, on his uh, macho, uh, on his ego, uh, on his ability to project his strength. And um, um, I also think that it's uh, impossible for Zelensky to concede something like this, this hero city that's been decimated with heroic defenders that have been able to withstand the worst of the worst of the Russian offensive. So I, I suspect that he might actually annex the Donbass. I suspect that once they take whatever it is they can, he'll try to take the Donbass off the table in terms of negotiations just by annexing it. There's just one analyst like guess, yeah. guess on the subject. I actually suspect he's going to annex the Donbass. Well, you had, uh, I believe, the head of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the Russian Duma actually say that they're looking at three scenarios for some of the areas that they've captured, creation of more of these fake statelets like in the Kherson, uh, Kherson's People Republic, uh, annexation of territory to existing statelets, like uh, there was a, a vote in one of the villages um, uh, about getting an annex to DNR. Um, and the third option, he said, is outright annexation to Russia. So um, they have a lot of options to choose from, and they may do different things with different parts of the region, right? Yeah, I, I think he's probably going to do at least two different things. One with Kherson, the part of Zaporizhia under Russian control, and something else possibly with the Donbass. They're just my current hypothesis, and please take that with large grains of salt, because I right. don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, the hardest thing here has been uh, to predict uh, what Putin is going to do, because uh, he's defying all logic sometimes, uh, in both how he's prosecuted this offensive and uh, him changing his mind on, on the objectives of the war based on what he's seen, uh, obviously, his military being able to achieve. Um, one, one, one last thing that I want to ask you is, is this May 9th date um, that's been uh, thrown around as, as supposedly his desire to end this war by May 9th, Victory Day uh, in Russia, obviously a hugely important holiday in Russia, victory of the Nazis, um, very symbolic for him to declare victory here uh, for prosecution of another successful war over the Nazis in Ukraine, as he would call it. But... Um, what strikes me that he may very well want that, but, um, you know, his desires may not meet reality uh, on the ground. And it doesn't seem like anything is really achievable by May 9th. Um, we're sitting here on April 24th, not, not that far away. Donbass is a huge area. And uh, from my perspective, it seems just like Kiev, where I'm sure he wanted to take Kiev. I'm sure he wanted to change the government of Kiev. But at the end of the day, when the generals and Shoigu came to him and said, boss, this is not achievable. He's, he may not like it, but he said, fine, let's switch objectives. What is achievable? Donbass, let's go after Donbass. So the very thing, same thing may happen here. May 8th, they come to him and say, boss, no way can we do it tomorrow. And, you know, he won't be happy, but uh, he'll have no choice but to accept it. Is that, is that how you read as well? Yeah, that's why May 9th is not deterministic of anything. Because I ask myself a basic question. Well, if they can't take the Donbass by May 9th, and they tell him that. And what does he say? Oh, well, then let's just call this war off. I mean, you have to be kidding me. Then they take it by May whatever, or they don't take it. But whatever next happens has no connection to the May 9th parade. That's the reality of it. So uh, I, I, I do suspect there is interaction there, and certainly saw it in the first couple of weeks, where either uh, the military was not willing to tell him the true reality of the disaster on the ground, or, and folks always assume it's the military that's not willing to tell political leadership about the problem on the ground. But actually, often it's the other way around. The military says the reality, and political leadership refuses to listen and accept what is being told to them and says that it's going to work out anyway and doesn't want to change the strategy, right? Or 
Putin answered to them and said that he actually knows best and that uh, they will somehow uh, actually achieve those objectives, et cetera, et cetera. And he may not have wanted to listen to them. In fact, I suspect that may have a lot to do with how this initial kind of bizarre regime change operation actually came together. Because even though Shoigu is very much a long-standing sycophant in that regime, I really struggle picturing Valery Gerasimov nodding along to this being a reasonable proposition that they could really pull this off. Okay, Shoigu, obviously the defense minister, Gerasimov, the, the, the head of the, um, the chief of staff, mm-hmm. effectively. Um, do you think Putin is micromanaging this war? We've seen him in this uh, 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 meeting with Shoigu say, let's not take Azovstal, let's, uh, let's blockade them, make sure that not even a fly gets through, as he said. Uh, is he doing that play by play in this war, you think? No, I don't think so. I think those meetings are just PR. I don't think he's micromanaging this war. And, and maybe that was already a recommendation on his uh, table and he wanted to look like the big guy that's making a critical decision to save Russian troops from uh, launching a major assault against this fortified facility, right? I think he was demanding from the military to take Mariupol. And it was taking them a long time to take Mariupol. But then he was demanding from them to launch an offensive in Donbass. And then they likely told him, just complete just conjecture on my part. Yeah. And then they likely told him, we're going to need all those battalions that are currently in Mariupol shifted north in order to pursue an offensive in the Donbass. If we're going to do that, there cannot be further storming of Azovstal and whatnot. And then he basically said, okay, fine, then, then we'll, we'll make a political statement that we've, we've quote-unquote captured Mariupol, we don't need to seize Azovstal, and then, and then you can shift forces. Something along those lines. Because otherwise, I don't know why he had this weird meeting with Shoigu where uh, Shoigu was at the edge of a seat, barely looking at him. Because I, I can imagine what, what, what Shoigu's situation is right now, given Russian military performance. And they and claim he just had a heart attack, too. I don't, I don't think that's true. Um, at least, that's what, I don't know, but I, I doubt it. Uh, I've, so many rumors have been swirling yeah. in that they just haven't been true in, in the last two months of this conflict. But um, Well, this was actually from official Russian sources saying that he had a minor heart attack. Okay, well, fine. Um, look, and then there's the other part of, well, I won't expect everybody saw how Putin was sitting, and that was incredibly strange, too. I do, uh, I do find it striking how uh, so much of the Twitter audience uh, went from being experts on Afghanistan to experts on COVID to experts on Russia, and now they're medical experts uh, trying to diagnose Putin's uh, uh, Parkinson, Parkinson's or um, lack thereof. So, uh, one last question: You're going to hate me about this, Mike, but uh, for, for this question, Mike, but um, where are we going to be in a year? Oh gosh. <laughs> Where are we going to be here? Hope we're all still going to be here. Uh, <laughs> some escalation potential in this overall war. Um, yeah, I, I, I can't, in, in all honesty, uh, an- answer that question. So I, I doubt there's going to be a peace settlement to this war a year out. That's the only thing I will say. I mean, I, I so can't. A, sem- a semi-frozen conflict, right? Um, potentially on a much bigger uh, line of conflict than what we've seen since 2014, potentially continued blockade of Ukrainian economy. And, um, you know, you could have Russia conducting strikes, missile strikes, rocket strikes, uh, um, airstrikes against Ukrainian cities, including Western cities like Lviv that we have seen over the last uh, uh, few weeks and, um, you know, continue to ter- terrorize the population. We just had a horrible story in Odessa of a mother with a newborn getting killed uh, just heartbreaking stories, but they, they can keep doing that, right? I mean, I, I don't think so, actually. I think they'll run out of missiles, and they're probably going to start running up against their reserve, to be honest, in terms of uh, long-range precision-guided weapons. What about the dumb missiles? Because um, they're, they're not going to care that, that much about what they actually hit. Here's here's where I fall on this. I, I actually think the attrition rate for Russia is going to be pretty problematic. It's very problematic now. It's going to be even more so if this conflict continues. For weaponry. As the war of attrition into the summer. That's just my general view of it. Uh, I doubt there's going to be a settlement of any kind. There could be a ceasefire, uh, and we shouldn't exclude that option. There could always be a ceasefire without any political concessions from either side. And I can definitely see the potential for that, maybe after this Donbass offensive. 
I don't know. And there's big questions about what's going to happen potentially in Russia, too, how the sanctions and everything else will affect Russia. And that's hard to predict. So and that's that why I'll, I'll say this thing. Uh, there's been some terrific analysis lately about um, the aviation sector in Russia. In particular, obviously, you've had a grounding of uh, most of the Boeing and Airbus planes uh, because of the um, uh, these companies refusing to maintain them. But even Russian made planes uh, like Suhoi's uh, commercial planes are getting potentially grounded here because they, they all rely on Western parts. Um, they're not that easy to replace. You may have literally empty skies in terms of civilian aviation over Russia, a massive country spanning numerous time zones. Um, that's going to be devastating to their economy, not to mention the blockade of semiconductors. Um, mm-hmm. On March 31st, there was uh, major sanctions added um, to the existing war sanctions uh, covering the, um, the one major fab that um, uh, the Russians have producing uh, 90, 90 nanometer chips that they need um, in their commercial and, and military sectors. Um, um, and, and those fabs are, are based on Western equipment. Uh, they're based on um, uh, Western processes. And most importantly, they're uh, uh, taking in chemicals and, and um, basic components from the West in order to operate. Um, this is going to be a massive problem for them. You can't manufacture missiles, um, even dumb ones, without, without chips. Um, right, you need some basic guidance systems, etc., um, and that's that's going to be a disaster for them. Well, we're at time. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Mike, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll try to continue doing this um, uh, as long as uh, this conflict uh, continues. Hopefully, not that long. But um, our, our thoughts, as always, are with the people in Ukraine um, that are suffering just terrible uh, consequences of this war every single day. So, thank you so much, and have a good night. No, thanks for having me back on the program.